You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted this week by me, Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Don't worry, regular Macrodose listeners, all is well with James. But after 31 consecutive weeks of the show, I'm stepping in for the week to give James a well-earned break. He'll be back here at the same time and the same place next week, bringing you all the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. But for now, on to today's show. First up, I'll be taking a deep dive into the NHS crisis, from the pandemic to austerity to privatisation by stealth. Why is the UK's health system so woefully inadequate? And for our second and final story, we'll return to one of your listener questions. What should we be demanding to see in the next Labour manifesto? Time for our first story this week, the crisis in the NHS. I've recently been reading Dr Julia Grace Patterson's book, Critical, which tells the story of the NHS from the perspective of a doctor and campaigner. It really brought home the horrors that those working in the NHS are faced with every day and the extraordinary stress of working in a collapsing system as well as the incredible courage of those who have stepped forward to try and save it. A lot of the statistics in this episode are drawn from the book, and I'd really recommend giving it a read. Most of us will have some experience of the scale of the crisis currently engulfing the NHS. As far back as 2017, the chief executive of the British Red Cross described the situation facing the NHS as a humanitarian crisis. And since then, things have only gotten worse. I think it's worth highlighting up front some statistics to show precisely how bad things really are right now. There are 7.2 million people waiting on NHS waiting lists in England alone. Ambulance waiting times have increased sharply in recent years to over 90 minutes for those in critical conditions such as stroke or chest pains. Elderly patients have been forced to wait from 24 to 36 hours in hospital waiting rooms before receiving care. 4,519 people in England died in 2020-2021 as a direct result of A&E waiting times delaying care. And, as if all of this wasn't bad enough, numbers of GPs have fallen every single year since Boris Johnson pledged a 6,000 increase in his 2019 manifesto. So how did we get to this point? The Conservatives claim that they've maintained NHS funding over their time in office and that it was never subject to the austerity cuts that began with George Osborne in 2010. This simply isn't true. Average annual health spending rose in real terms by more than 4% throughout the 60s, 70s and 90s, and it increased more than 6% throughout the 2000s. Under the Conservative-led coalition government elected in 2010, NHS funding increased by just 1.6%. In fact, the NHS has endured the longest funding squeeze in its history under a succession of Tory-led governments over the past 13 years. Today, the NHS in England faces a funding gap of between £4 billion and £9.4 billion each year. Again and again, the government has claimed that it will fix the problem. Before the pandemic, a new five-year funding settlement was agreed in which spending would rise at 3.4% per year in real terms until 2023-24. But inflation has chipped away at the government's promises. Budgets are now going to increase by only 2.9% per year, lower than the long-term average and not nearly enough to keep pace with rising demand, let alone make up for a decade of underinvestment. And that's just the annual gap. 
as anyone who works in the NHS will tell you, there is also the problem of a build-up of significant long-term and potentially hazardous maintenance issues due to a lack of capital investment. There is currently an unmet maintenance bill for building repairs in the NHS in England of over £9 billion. Next, there is the problem of social care, which is managed by local government separately to the NHS. Local government received the brunt of the cuts imposed from 2010, and funding from adult social care has fallen by £700 million since then. This means that a lot of older and vulnerable people are not receiving the care they need and are forced to rely on the NHS. And funding cuts are killing people. A 2021 study from the University of York linked insufficient funding in the health and social care systems to an excess 57,000 deaths over the course of five years. Between 2010 and 2015, social care spending fell by 1.6% in real terms, causing 23,662 additional deaths. And what is more, it's the doctors, nurses and all the staff that make up the NHS who are being forced to deal with these challenges, with devastating effects. Consultant pay has dropped 35% since 2008-2009. Nurses' salaries have fallen by an average of 8%. 10% of the entire NHS staff workforce is off work, many due to stress and mental ill health. And nearly one-third of NHS trusts have been forced to open food banks for their own staff, with another fifth planning to open one. It's fair to say that this NHS crisis has been a long time in the making, and a conjuncture of many different factors have brought us to this point. So, when COVID hit in 2020, the inevitable public health emergency that followed was made deeper and much more damaging by years of mismanagement and underfunding. Even before the pandemic, demand for healthcare was rising, and pressure on the NHS was growing. According to the King's Fund, there were 1.2 million more admissions at major A&E departments in the UK in 2019 than there were in 2011. Referrals to outpatient services were rising at an annual rate of 3.2% before the pandemic, while demand for GP appointments increased around 15% between 2010-11 and 2014-15. In part, this is due to demographic ageing. Around one in six people in Britain are now over the age of 65. And in the next 20 years, that'll rise to one in four. But the problems in the NHS are deeper than simply COVID or an ageing population. Both factors affect every country in the world, yet the NHS seems to be in a deeper crisis than many other health systems. What's key to remember here isn't just the headline impacts of austerity on the immediate provision of care, but also its less discussed social impacts. The most significant determinants of a person's all-round health are social, from nutrition to air pollution to stress levels. Austerity has led to an increase in poverty and inequality that has had devastating effects on people's mental and physical health. The United Nations called the UK's austerity programme a social calamity. The UK's austerity programme is estimated to have caused an excess 120,000 deaths. When Jeremy Corbyn cited this statistic on Question Time, Channel 4's fact check cast doubt on the assertion, writing that we cannot say that austerity policies caused 120,000 extra deaths. But hundreds of papers have now been written demonstrating clear evidence of a link between austerity and declining public health all over the world. In fact, recent research has revealed that austerity policies have actually caused far more than 120,000 excess deaths in the UK. 
A study released in 2022 by the University of Glasgow and the Glasgow Centre for Population Health compared previous trends in life expectancy to those seen following the introduction of austerity policies. The study showed that between 2012 and 2019, 335,000 more people died than what would have been expected if trends in life expectancy seen prior to 2010 had continued. These wider social impacts of austerity are vital to remember when contextualising the NHS crisis we see today. While funding has been cut, demand for care is rising due to a general austerity-driven decline in living standards. At the other end of the chain, on the supply side, we've also seen the slow and steady privatisation of our basic health services. The NHS is getting more expensive to run, and that's not just because we expect it to do more things. It's because profits are getting skimmed off the top and distributed to private companies. The so-called Lansley reforms have allowed private organisations to bid for many more NHS contracts than they had in the past and the value of contracts awarded to the private sector increased by more than 500% in the two years following the introduction of the law. Virgin Care was the provider that benefited the most from these contracts, winning over £1 billion in contracts in 2016-2017 alone. Just as we saw with the COVID contracts during the pandemic, many of the private providers to win NHS contracts were later found to have failed to meet basic standards of care. Billions of pounds have been wasted on paying organisations that failed to meet basic contractual obligations. According to one former doctor, administration costs in the NHS in 1979 were around 6%. After the introduction of the internal market, these had doubled to 12%. PFI schemes, in which private investors are tasked with funding and operating certain parts of the NHS, have been an unmitigated disaster and an incredibly expensive one. 2018 figures show that PFI schemes involving the NHS had a value of £12.8 billion. But by the time the debt is finally cleared, the taxpayer will have paid around £80 billion for the hospitals and facilities built under these schemes. In total, NHS trusts are paying more on PFI repayments than on their total annual medicines bill. How did PFI contracts rack up such huge bills? because contractors know they could overcharge the taxpayer without anyone batting an eyelid. In one case, an NHS trust was charged £242 to change the padlock on a garden gate. In another, a trust was charged £13,703 to install three lights in a garden. The Tories claimed that these facts disguise the truth, which is that only a tiny proportion of total NHS spending goes on private providers. Yet this is false too. The Centre for Health and the Public Interest recently found that, if spending on GPs is excluded, 18% of the NHS budget was spent on the private sector. This figure rose sharply between 2013 and 2019 due to a massive increase in the purchase of care by the NHS from non-NHS providers. Privatisation has gone even further in the care sector, which is managed by local authorities. In 2019, 84% of beds in the social care system were provided by the private sector. And this number has been increasing. The share of beds run by private companies went up 91% in local authorities between 2015 and 2019. Many of these providers are massive private equity companies that hope to slash costs to extract wealth out of the public sector. So how did we get here? How did we come to allow the whims of profiteers free reign to organise and extract from our most vital care systems? 
Part of the problem is the astonishing lobbying power held by private healthcare companies over the Conservative Party. According to Open Democracy, the Conservatives have taken more than £800,000 in donations from private healthcare companies over the last decade. In 2019, Babylon Healthcare, a private company which allows patients to see NHS doctors over an app, donated £10,000 to Matt Hancock's leadership campaign. Rishi Sunak has appointed a private healthcare lobbyist as his health policy advisor. But it's not just the Conservatives. According to campaign group Every Doctor, there is also a long list of Labour MPs who have taken money from private healthcare interests, including none other than Sir Keir Starmer himself. But the other, arguably bigger problem is neoliberal ideology itself. The privatisation of the NHS has always been a central aim of the neoliberal movement. Archival documents released from the Treasury in 2016 revealed that, despite claiming that the NHS was safe in her hands, Thatcher actively sought to destroy the institution. While she was forced to step back from some of her more extreme proposals due to a cabinet revolt, Thatcher kicked off a privatisation process within the NHS that has continued until this day. It was Thatcher's idea to introduce an internal market into the NHS in a bid to make the institution run more like a, quote, supermarket. The proposal was to encourage different trusts to compete against each other to attract patients, with the government rewarding those that competed most effectively. Thatcher also sought to increase private insurance coverage and boost private healthcare providers. The long-term aim was to destroy the NHS as a public institution. As recently as 2012, the IEA, one of the UK's foremost neoliberal think tanks famously close to the Thatcher government, released an article entitled How to Abolish the NHS. All of the issues we've seen so far are actually feeding into this long-term aim of NHS privatisation. As Noam Chomsky once observed, the standard technique of privatisation is, quote, defund, make sure things don't work, people get angry, you hand it over to private capital. We have to assume that it is a central aim of the right to undermine universal access to free healthcare. Not just because they've stated that this is their aim, not just because of the massive profits that this process would create for private healthcare companies, but because the principle of universality upon which the NHS was founded is antithetical to the neoliberal ethos. When Thatcher said, economics are the method, the object is to change the soul, she was referring to the need to promote a kind of individualism that the universal welfare state subverted. If people cooperate rather than competing, it is harder to exploit them. If they can rely on collective institutions to meet their basic needs, it is harder to scare them into obedience. But if your life literally depends on the health insurance provided to you through your job, you're probably going to think twice before joining a union and demanding a pay rise. In this sense, the US healthcare system is perfect for private capital. It provides ample opportunities for profit-making, while ensuring a docile and disciplined working class, and top-quality care for those exploiting them. If services stop working properly, middle-class users will flock to private providers. Those that use private providers are more likely to have private health insurance, which means they no longer rely on the NHS. When enough Conservative voters no longer rely on the NHS, it becomes easier to defund. And as it is defunded, more people flock to the private providers, creating a kind of vicious cycle seen very clearly in recent years. Thatcher was aware of this doom loop and introduced legislation to encourage more people to use private providers and take out private insurance. 
According to the IPPR, the UK is already in danger of moving towards a two-tier healthcare system, with some being able to afford to purchase private healthcare insurance and use private providers, while others are forced to rely on a crisis-stricken NHS. One in eight adults who struggled to access the NHS during the pandemic opted for private healthcare. Spending on private healthcare rose from 0.54% of all healthcare spending to 2.33% in 2020. And today, about 13% of people in the UK have some form of private health insurance. The crisis in the NHS is then part of a larger problem. If it was left up to the Conservative Party, we probably never would have had an NHS to begin with. And there are clearly elements within the party who would still like to see the institution privatised. If Labour doesn't take a stand against privatisation, costs will continue to mount whilst the quality of care declines. This is a story that isn't going away. And as the cost of living crisis intensifies and climate breakdown deepens, the pressures on our healthcare system are only going to get more intense. If we want to protect our NHS, it's going to take more than clapping for essential workers. The NHS has to be both refunded and deprivatised. This year is the 75th anniversary of the NHS, and it's more important now than ever that we stand up for the principles upon which it was founded. Universal healthcare, free at the point of use. If you want to hear more about the UK's care crisis and what we can do next, I would definitely recommend checking out Open Democracy's new video series, produced by Planet B Productions, who make Macrodose. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. On that note, it's time to turn to the second and final story of the week. A few weeks ago on this podcast, James answered a listener question from Tom, who asked, what should we be pushing for in the next Labour manifesto? James did a great job of giving an outline of what some of our key demands should be. But I wanted to add my own thoughts on this, as it's one of the most pressing questions facing us today. There's a lot that could be said here, but I'm going to focus on the biggest problems we're facing at the moment climate change, the cost of living crisis, and public services provision. I and many others have spent a long time campaigning for a Green New Deal that could tackle many of these problems together. Allocating a pot of money for investment in things like retrofitting the housing stock, greening our infrastructure, and research and development into green technologies would create jobs, boost demand, and support decarbonisation. As many campaigners have pointed out, caring jobs are green jobs and a key way to tackle the climate and care crises together would be to invest in the NHS and social care, as well as committing to ending privatisation that increased costs and compromises outcomes. Doing so would also particularly benefit women and people of colour, who make up a disproportionate share of workers in the sector. But it would also require some much more progressive commitments on migration. As a country, we rely on workers from all around the world, without which our NHS and social care systems wouldn't have been founded and couldn't continue to function. Obviously, the global working class that built the UK's public services has every right to live here, to be paid and treated well, and not subject to the hostile environment. Aside from this, more action is needed to tackle the cost of living crisis, which, as economist Isabella Weber has explained here on Macrodose is being driven just as much by the greed of big corporations as it is by external cost pressures, certainly more than it is being driven by wages. As James has been saying on here too, I'd like to see Labour take seriously the idea of price controls on essential goods, as well as windfall taxes on excess profits. 
Aside from jobs creation, we also need the government to create a social security system that is fit for purpose and invest in public services that support people's living standards. All of this requires Labour to rethink its stance on so-called fiscal credibility, which, I'm sure I don't have to remind listeners of this podcast, is based on nonsense economics. We're a low-wage, low-productivity and increasingly poor economy precisely because we have failed to invest over the long term. Public investment to fill these gaps, improve living standards and raise productivity is the only answer to this problem. While it makes sense to cover as much of current spending through taxes as possible, Labour needs to rethink its stance on taxation. Wealth and income inequality in this country have been rising, yet the wealthiest aren't paying their fair share. Tax reform, things like aligning the taxation of income from wealth with that from work, as well as considering things like a wealth tax, combined with measures to curb avoidance and evasion, are crucial. And it goes without saying that the Labour Party should be committing to reverse the decades-long onslaught against our trade unions. I'm interested to hear from listeners as to what they think should be included in the next manifesto. Please do send your answers and any further listener questions to Macrodose's Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash macrodose. You can also send in questions using the email in the show notes of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning into Macrodose, and hopefully I'll catch you all back here again soon. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. 